And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Show. Thank you for joining us live. You're watching us on YouTube. Derek Van Riper here with El Melchior. It is Friday, April 1st, and yes, we are making a schedule change. This is not an April Fool's joke gone awry. We are moving the weekly waiver show that ran on Sundays the last few seasons, moving it to Friday afternoons. So the live version of that is 4 o'clock Eastern on YouTube. And of course, the podcast version will follow a couple hours later. The good news is you'll have it for the entire weekend as you go about your research. Of course, a few things can change on Saturday and Sunday, but this hopefully lays a really good foundation as you begin that prep process. Al, it was a busy Friday because we had an unexpected trade that came down mid-morning, I think, on the East Coast. Craig Kimbrell is now a member of the Dodgers, which does a couple of things. First, it vaults Craig Kimbrell's value in drafts that haven't happened yet, probably up into the top 10 among closers, I think, on most people's rankings. Yeah, uh, for sure. It definitely should. Uh, and I think a lot of people were foreseeing this. There was just excess there in the White Sox bullpen. Uh, Kimbrell's, it seemed like Kimbrell's uh, ADP had big climbing uh, over the course of spring training here. So, uh, but still, it'll, it'll obviously rise some more now for the, the late drafts. And uh, top 10, I think, is, is probably conservative. Yeah, I think for the last maybe 10 to 14 days, there was a, a temporary lull. People were kind of starting to back off Kimbrell, thinking this trade wasn't going to happen until some point during the season, but now he lands in a place that it looks like he's kind of the new Kenley Jansen. And if you were like me and you were excited about Blake Trinan previously, now you're left to wonder, do I drop him in leagues where I already have him? Because this could still be a little bit fluid. They talked about using Blake Trinan as the fireman, like use him as the, the highest leverage reliever. And it sounded like he was embracing that role that plays in some formats as your last pitcher, but not necessarily in a 10-team mixed league, or maybe even a 12-team mixed league that doesn't offer holds as a category. So I'm just curious, uh, how much does this lower your interest in Blake Trinan with Kimbrell, presumably just the new closer for the Dodgers? Well, the way I was reading that earlier piece of news about uh, Trinan moving into that fireman role this doesn't change that much for me. So I guess it all depends on how you interpreted that news because for me, it sounded like there was just going to be a committee situation and Trinan was not necessarily assured of getting getting a big share of that. So from that point forward, I know that we're only talking what maybe a couple days ago when that report came out. But at that point, to my mind, Trinan went from somebody that I was really interested in as an RP2 to somebody who was almost completely off of my radar and saves only leagues. Uh, and so... This probably erodes that value even a little bit more. It's hard to see him getting really any save opportunities aside from maybe just the stray one or two here and there uh, with uh, somebody of Kimbrell's, uh, uh, his value in that role. But um, I think that that earlier part of the news was was more puncturing to his value than, than even this was. 
I think the way I'm looking at Blake Trinan today after the trade is probably similar to the way that I've looked at Devin Williams all along. Now it takes an injury for a really good reliever for the opportunity to materialize. And if Devin Williams is rostered in your league, then Blake Trinan should still be rostered in your league. It's probably the, the best way I can look at it with a player in a similar situation. I think that's optimistic. Uh, because yeah, if, if something were to happen where Josh Hader was unavailable, Devin Williams to me would seem to be, he'd be the, the primary person there. But in LA, I mean, we already got a signal that unless this was a way of kind of um, alerting us to the fact that the Dodgers were going to make a move, maybe that's how we should be interpreting that. But I think the safe way to interpret it is that even if Kimbrell were somehow not available, that Dave Roberts could go to one of several people. That may or may not include Blake Trinan. And I think of that group, we're talking you know, Daniel Hudson, we're talking Bruce Dergratterall. I think the deeper leagues where those guys were rostered, they're pretty easy cuts at this point because they're also now one chair further away from those opportunities. I do think the difference, though, between the Williams situation and the Trinan situation right now is that with Craig Kimbrell, 2019 and 2020 happened. I know they were very small volumes of innings, but those were a meltdown. Like That was a meltdown two-year stretch where the walk rate went through the roof. There was a home run issue. Josh Hader doesn't have that by comparison. So you have that little bit of doubt in the back of your mind about Kimbrell. If he gets off to a rough start, You know how patient are the Dodgers going to be with him? That's the only real difference in those situations that makes me still a little bit optimistic about Trinan as a possible stash. But I don't think he's a must-roster player in leagues with 12 or fewer teams at this point as a result of this move. Of course, A.J. Pollock not being on the depth chart for the Dodgers means one more share of near everyday playing time is available. Gavin Lux had a role before, but how much of a role do you think he has now? Because when I look at the depth charts, I'm looking at the Rotowire depth charts, and it's really in line with how my mind works, where they've got Max Muncy as the primary DH, Cody Bellinger as the primary center fielder, Chris Taylor as the primary left fielder, and Gavin Lux as the primary second baseman. And I know they mix and match a lot. They're going to give Justin Turner days off. There's going to be some playing time for Kevin Pillar in the outfield. Bellinger himself is a bit of a question right now as far as what they're going to do with him to begin the season. But when I look at all this, I see a much better path for Gavin Lux to at least be a big side platoon player. But maybe now he gets an opportunity to prove that he's an everyday guy with Pollock gone. Absolutely. Uh, this is a, just a huge boon for Gavin Lux and, and for people who have drafted him or people who will draft him over the weekend. Uh, I just don't see anybody in that depth chart that's really uh, a threat to him getting a, a substantial boost in playing time. And like you say, probably the worst case scenario here is the bigger side of platoon. And the, you know, the only question is just, can he make that leap that we've waited for Lux to make uh, prior to this? Because uh, I, I really I was out on Lux. I haven't drafted him anywhere. I doubted the role, but I also just doubted the the skills uh, transferring over to the majors. Uh, the you know the numbers that he put up in AAA in a, in a favorable environment. Uh, how was how is that ever going to translate to the major league? So I was really starting to be skeptic. But uh, if you bought into Lux as a as a post hype breakout candidate, then you did you did well. Congrats to Nando DeFino's baseball card collection value, which is up as a result of uh, Gavin Lux purchases over the course of the winter. At least uh, already on paper, it seems like there's a much better chance for him to 
deliver on the promise that he showed us a couple of years ago. It is wise to think about where he did that at AAA, and it was the year of the super happy fun ball at AAA, but WRC Plus and Age to Level helped contextualize that even in a very favorable environment, Gavin Lux performed at an exceptionally high level. So I do think there's more he can do as a big league player. Maybe he ends up uh, popping 20 homers this year. I actually think he's going to surprise people with what he does as a as a base dealer. I think that's the category we're going to see a little more growth than expected from Lux. So he definitely gets a bump, probably more in the mix now for even a 12-team league roster spot. Uh, because I think in shallow leagues especially, Al, when you're looking at your end game, when you're looking at your bench, you're trying to think about what could go right. And I think in a lineup that good, with the prospect pedigree that Gavin Lux has, multi-position eligibility in most leagues with second and short, he fits, he meets the criteria. If he's not playing as much as we would like him to for a league that shallow, he becomes a player that we start talking about dropping You know, in a couple of weeks once we get a look at what the Dodgers do over their first three to four series. I think that's going to give us a pretty good indication of how they intend to use him at least for the first couple months of the season. Uh, A.J. Pollock to the White Sox. I, I don't think much changes with Pollock's value. I think he's still just as interesting as he was when the day started. I guess this is probably just bad news for a guy like Gavin Sheets. And Sheets might still get to play a little bit to begin the year, depending on the health of Andrew Vaughn, who's been working his way back from a hip injury. But Sheets, for me, is just more of a AL-only league sort of player right now as the first left-handed bat off the bench for the White Sox. I suppose maybe there would be a little bit of mixing and matching there to give him semi-regular playing time but I think that at this point that's probably the the best case scenario so yeah it's it's a big big jolt to uh, Gavin Sheets and his fantasy value and I, I felt like there was some hype building around him I was certainly looking to target him late in some drafts so that obviously is a big change for Sheets uh, yeah for Pollock it probably all washes out I mean he's going from a, a good environment to to another very good environment for power uh, he goes from a great lineup to a lineup that's maybe just a little a little less robust but I would agree with you I think it's probably pretty close to a lateral move for AJ Pollock who I feel like has been consistently underrated for a few seasons now so sometimes when a player moves and it just it, it puts them in people's conscious uh, consciousness and maybe this will give them a, a final weekend uh, boost in ADP but uh, he's he's been he's been a good bargain so far yeah I can't figure out if Pollock in mono leagues, if he was getting a slight bump because he was a Dodger and everyone said, well, the lineup context is great. They, they know how to use him. Maybe they can keep him healthy. All, all those kinds of things. We tend to round up on the value of Dodgers in formats like that. I kind of think with the White Sox, health has always been the issue for him. If AJ Pollock's healthy, I think he can take well over 500 plate appearances in a season based on the skills that he's shown. I think on a team with a little bit less depth, the playing time ceiling actually crept up for AJ Pollock. And I think the supporting cast is at least comparable. There are there's like one lineup in the league, the Blue Jays, maybe, that could go toe-to-toe with the Dodgers in terms of top to bottom value. But the White Sox are a very good lineup. So I don't think Pollock's losing that much in terms of supporting cast. And I think he's actually gaining a little bit of something in terms of the playing time ceiling possibilities where the White Sox bench isn't quite as strong as the Dodgers bench. And I think that forces them to lean more on Pollock health permitting. Yeah, the Sox don't have a, like a Kevin Pillar who really isn't somebody who should have un, been unseating A.J. Pollock as a regular, but you could see, again, the Dodgers doing what they do and, and just resting people here and there and, and cutting into playing time with Pollock. 
So I think that the chances for that are much less because you and I were talking about this a little bit right before we came on here that the, we, you know, I think we agree that the White Sox did well here because they traded from an area of, of surplus and filled really their one big need in the lineup. So yeah, there's not a lot of depth there. There's nobody that AJ Pollock's going to be looking over his shoulder for uh, in terms of playing time. I saw a lot of Michael Conforto tweets after the trade with the hope and speculation that maybe the Dodgers would go out and sign him. Don't know if that's going to happen. We learned that Conforto actually suffered a shoulder injury back in January doing defensive drills, so that might at least partially explain why he remains a free agent here on April 1st. Uh, On this show, what we normally do when there's not a trade to break down for the first 10 minutes or so We get right at it. We go after hitters. We're going to split things up where we talk about shallow league hitters and then deeper league hitters. We're always open to questions. You can send those in on the live stream. That's the easiest way to possibly get one right onto the show. We can check Twitter as well. So be sure to drop those in the comment section wherever you need to get them in. We'll try to answer as many as we can as we go. But I think the bulk of our conversation tends to focus on 15-team leagues. Uh, Hopefully, the players that we're talking about are relevant in as many leagues as possible. Pollock, Lux, you know, they're shallow league relevant players. Lux, as I mentioned, he moves up. Pollock, I think, was already rostered in most of the leagues where he should still be rostered. If he's out there in a 10-team league, I do think he's good enough, even in a three-outfielder league, to consider as one of your last players. Randall Gritchick in Colorado is another one of those guys. If you had your draft 10 days ago and he's still sitting out there on the wire because you haven't had any sort of ads and drops yet, I think he's much more shallow mixed league viable than I ever would have expected because the Colorado bump is very real. And on a less talented team, it's a little bit like the Pollock thing I was describing. There's a max playing time volume opportunity for Gritchick now that he's in Colorado. Uh, I think it's a much bigger bump in the anticipated playing time from going from Toronto to to Colorado. So uh, I was looking at some roster trend tables uh, just a little while a uh, little while ago, and yeah, Gritchick, as you would expect, he's trending. Uh, he's being added in a lot of leagues, but still in twelve teamers, I think he's out there in a lot of leagues. So certainly three outfield leagues, I think that he would be there. And I think that Gritchick with this trade does become a viable uh, out uh, third outfielder in a twelve team league. Now, I know you wanted to talk about Alejandro Kirk, and I think in a shallow league, I always think of a one-catcher league, right? If you're talking about a smaller league, Yahoo, ESPN, wherever you like to play, usually shallow leagues are one-catcher. Do you see Alejandro Kirk as an impactful enough hitter right now with the Jays to be consistently rostered in leagues that might only have 12 to 14 total catchers on teams? I think so, because I think he is at the the bottom end of that ranking. Uh, I think that once the top nine catchers are off the board, and I personally rank them a little bit differently than you would see in ADP, uh, but that group of nine that is pretty consistently uh, going ahead of, of everybody else, I think once they're off the board... It's just you go for upside, and obviously Kirk has a ton of upside compared to that the rest of that field of catchers. So yeah, as the eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth catcher in a league, I, I have little to, to quibble with there. The other player type that I think is interesting in shallow leagues this time of year are the prospects that are still hanging around in camp, battling for opening day roster spots. Riley Green is among them. Julio Rodriguez, who we've talked about on this podcast a lot. Uh, is also among them. Spencer Torkelson kind of got the vote of confidence earlier this week from Alavila, the Tigers GM, kind of pushing 
the idea that they expect him to be on the opening day roster. Green fouled a ball off his foot earlier in the day on Friday. We don't know the results of further tests on that just yet. So that could that could be the thing that just pushes him off the opening day roster, whether it's to the IL or whether it's because he misses some time. They want to give him a few games at AAA before bringing him up. But does the that little bit of news on Green actually change your plans for him in shallow leagues if you're drafting this weekend or if you're thinking about picking him up? It doesn't for me because I do see Riley Green as somebody, at least at this point, just a little bit beyond the cusp of players that I was considering for 12-team leagues. Um, maybe more somebody that I was thinking about uh, for Fab. If he uh, got that role early, that starting role early, and did well with it. But uh, I'm, I'm not expecting a lot of steals from Riley Green this year. Uh, not not so many that uh, I, you know, I'm willing to try to piece them together elsewhere. So yeah, I just I didn't see enough there in the the entire package to to elevate him to that level as even like a fifth outfielder in a, in a twelve teamer. I find the prospects, and you and I talked a lot about them earlier this week. I find the prospects that are knocking on the door to be some of the most difficult players to value in shallow mixed leagues. O'Neill Cruz, for example, was sent down to AAA earlier this week. It wasn't a complete surprise because Pirates going to pirate. At the same time, like every week when we go through this, we talk so much about players we add. We talk a little about the players that we have to drop. How patient are you going to be with O'Neill Cruz, especially in shallow leagues right now? I mean, I think knowing that he got a little bit of service time at the end of last season, that adds a couple more days to how long we have to wait if they're just looking to secure the extra year of service time, which given the team we're talking about, which is the case with most teams, you'd assume probably two to three weeks at the earliest before they bring O'Neill Cruz back up into the fold. Can you wait it out? Or is it better to go ahead and, and take that shot on someone else who's still in camp with their big league team as we move through the weekend? Well, if I've already drafted Cruz, I am going to wait it out because uh, unlike with Green, where I would expect the contributions really to any given category to be sort of modest, I do think that Cruz has that potential to to really contribute to steals and you know what? What's there to lose? Like you say, it could be as soon as two weeks before we see him. Maybe that's the the most optimistic viewpoint that we can take. But if it is two weeks or even three weeks, you plug somebody in, and then you know you're still getting 23, 24 weeks of O'Neill Cruz. So, uh, yeah, if it was a situation where I thought maybe we were talking about middle of May, early June, it's a different calculus. But I I'm agreeing with you that I don't think that he'll be up any later than like late April. So given what my expectations are for Cruz, I'm definitely stashing them. One more shadow league player that I want to ask you about because you put him in the shadow league section. I don't see him as a shadow league player at all. So I need you to make the case for Patrick wisdom, cheap power, definitely a possibility. But as soon as they brought in Jonathan VR, any little, any little bit of belief that I had that Patrick wisdom could be an everyday player for the Cubs went out the window. Well, I'll tell you what, I put wisdom in there based on the roster rate and not on my personal belief. So I put some players in there that I thought we could talk about and say, well, this is what the community is doing, but would we do something different? So I think we're actually on the (laughs) same page here with Patrick Wisdom that I I actually don't see him as 12-team viable, but based on roster trends, it seems like a lot of other other people are. So that's not a move I'd be looking to make in my shallow leagues where he is available this weekend. It's fun on YouTube being able to just put little banners on the screen as we go and I decided to label Patrick Wisdom a shallow league drop. I actually think the situation there 
in terms of playing time, simply isn't going to be good enough. There's a skills question. The amount of swing and miss we saw from him, even though he was hitting a ton of home runs on a per-game basis last year, it just makes him too risky for 10 and 12-team leagues. So if you have him on your roster right now, you want to look for some of the other shallow league players that we've talked about, or perhaps even some of these, these deeper league players that we're going to focus on for a good portion of this show. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? (laughs) You mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Let's start with some corner infielders. Now, this group, I'm looking at guys like J.D. Davis, Kevin Smith in Oakland, where their playing time could be plentiful. Colin Moran, who was quietly added as a DH option, probably on the big side of platoon in Cincinnati. And Brad Miller, who's got first base and outfield eligibility. I think of him a little more as a corner guy. We'll see if he ends up getting any opportunities at third base or not. But Brad Miller is like a sneaky, useful offensive player. He's got some real-life defensive flaws, but as long as he's on a team that doesn't really worry about that and spots him carefully, I think there is a a good bit of of deep league appeal here. I agree. I agree. Uh, I like the situation for Brad Miller. He's, like you said, he's provided sneaky value for a few years now. So uh, I'm, I'm in on him as well. Um, I really, all the you know players that you mentioned, I think are, are viable. I thought that's interesting too, that you mentioned Colin Moran, because that's a name that hasn't come up on previous episodes of, of this podcast that, um, that I've been on and you have to love a move like that with the player going to Cincinnati with the chance for, uh, you know, at least the big side of platoon. So, uh, that ballpark can take somebody with middling power, which I think is what Moran has and make him. Definitely not 12-team viable, but 14-15 team makes them pretty interesting. Yeah, definitely in the mix for me for those deeper formats. I don't know if we'll get to a point this year. Maybe there's going to be a stretch where they're home for a week and they're facing all righties or nearly all righties and we'll stream them in shallow leagues. That's possible for Colin Moran. Uh, but the park factors upgrade alone makes him a lot more interesting than he was during his time in Pittsburgh. And even though the Reds have been doing the Let's get cheaper, even if we're not getting better plan. He's in a better lineup. Moran is in a better lineup now than he was in Pittsburgh as well. So the counting stats could actually tick up just a little bit. I would say of all the players, though, in this corner group, Kevin Smith is the one that just jumps off the page to me. I mean, he can be a shortstop, as I've mentioned before. He's third base only in pretty much all the leagues that I've looked at so far. So you do have to use him on a corner. I don't think it's going to take a lot to get him in leagues that use fab budgets for pickups. Uh, I think relatively speaking, you could be looking at maybe 3 to 5% of your budget in a 15-team league. And this is a guy that could have a prominent spot in the lineup all season. Made a swing change prior to 2021. We saw the results really pay off for him 
at the AAA level, over 20 homers, 18 for 21 as a base dealer. And the A's, I think the A's are one of those teams, Al, that if they have anybody that sticks in their lineup who can steal a base, they're going to have green lights because they are not built to score a lot of runs unless they manufacture them in ways like that. Yeah, it's a great setting for him. Uh, I mean, maybe not in terms of maximizing his power. Obviously, Toronto would have been a much better situation, but here he he stands to gain a lot of playing time. Uh, could be a power speed threat in Oakland. Gets on base a lot, so that's something that could keep Smith in the lineup. So, yeah, I, I, of all these uh, corner type players that you're mentioning, I think that Smith easily has the best shot at being an accumulator. And yeah, I do like the skills that, especially as he displayed after that swing change, it's, it's pretty exciting. Rob on YouTube uh, is dropping wisdom smart. That's uh, the most Al question I've ever seen <laughs> on this podcast. Well played, Rob. Well played. Got a question here from Joe. This is a broader question before we get into a few more players. In these first couple fab runs, do you have a general approach to how long you'll hold a speculative closer who doesn't appear to be getting the early season share examples, Tanner Rainey, David Bednar, Anthony Bender, etc. I mean, this is this is the the most we've ever seen teams at least say that they're going to use committees. I imagine many of these teams will follow through on that. And I was making this argument on rates and barrels with Eno on Thursday. I think we won't know for probably three to four series who's really in the committee and who's not because you have to generate enough save chances that are unique, whether it's righty lefty or just to get a sense of who's really the high leverage guy and who's just the the second best option. I think holding these relievers that are part of committees is going to be one of the most difficult decisions that we have to make for the first two to three weeks. And my, my gut would be that if you see multiple saves go to one reliever before someone else in the committee gets their first one, they might be bailing on the committee. It could be variance, but I, I'm, that's the that's the indicator I'm looking for if I'm trying to cut somebody. So if you if you're holding David Bednar right now, and he was more expensive than a lot of these other committee guys because that Chris Stratton news came in relatively late in spring training. But if we get through the first weekend of games, that's probably not enough time to make a decision there because it's only two guys. But we get through the first full week, so three series, and Chris Stratton gets two saves and the Pirates haven't generated any other save chances yet, David Bednar is probably a cut for me at that point. Just trying to do the best I can with figuring out what is the distribution of saves going to look like going forward and and trying to make that call on on very limited information. I think, yeah, I, I think that's a good rule of thumb in general. I know in practice, I wouldn't necessarily make that same decision because it would depend on the reliever. It would depend on now there. Yeah, there's the skills profile and it, it's going to take time to see if our expectations of the stats and the underlying skills, you know, bear out the way that we expect them to. But that, that yeah, there's the part that's out of our control, which is what are the managerial decisions? And I think it's still, you know, one or two weeks is still a pretty short timeline to be making that decision because, you know, I think you have to really look at the situations, pay close attention, because if it's a a, a situation where, uh, uh, you know, Chris Stratton, I guess I'm not sure what the, the advantage would be in terms of matchups, but let's say if there's, there's a, a matchup that would benefit a particular reliever over another one in the committee, you have to take that into account too. So if you really believe in the skills profile, if you, have a, a hunch or that you've, you've gotten news that a manager is going to go in a certain direction in terms of how to use the different members of the committee. 
it can be a little bit nuanced, but yeah, I mean, if you have to make a tough decision and David Bednar hasn't gotten a save after, after three series, you just may have to make that cut, even though you, you may not feel great about the m- amount of information that you have. And I think what it's going to be is probably taking a shot at someone else's committee where whether it's right. Stratton himself or some other reliever who popped up and got a couple saves consecutively or in a, in a really short period of time. Can you get that closer? And also having disciplined bidding on those players. I think this could be a year where we see some like massive overpays for guys that look like closers for a very brief time and are only partial closers or only a situational closer. And someone else got healthy, came back, and with that, that person that got that save became a sixth or seventh inning guy instead of an eighth or ninth inning guy. So uh, it's going to be ugly in leagues that use fab this year so be very careful with those fab dollars in in the land of uncertainty because that's exactly where we are right now Um, of those corner guys i mentioned before kind of going back to the hitters while i think kevin smith is the one that i like the most overall in leagues where everyone's available i think the exception is probably jd davis but he's less available by comparison there were more people stashing him as soon as we knew that the DH was coming back to the National League, I got the sense that the J.D. Davis crowd was quick to pounce on him as a late-round pick. So I don't think I don't consider him as available as the other guys, but I also don't know if he's a, a relevant 10-team mixed-league player right now either because it's still more of a, a mix-and-match situation than some of us would like it to be. Let's get to a few uh, middle infielders. This group includes guys like Andy Abanez, who's actually trying to win playing time at third base but he's second base only unless your league has a 10 game requirement jose iglesias if your league drafted early quietly landed in a good situation by signing with the rockies bryson stott trying to get his uh, get a spot on the phillies roster played some third base this spring could be a replacement for Didi gregorius at shortstop tyler wade who after the music stopped apparently is the starting shortstop for the angels and then dylan moore who does the things we want fantasy players to do in terms of power and speed, but may not have a clear-cut role in Seattle to begin the season. Does anybody really jump off the page for you from this group, Al? I suppose maybe Tyler Wade, but I'm not sure that I trust the playing time regardless of the opening day status for him. But uh, yeah, he was a big contributor for steals last year without having a regular role. So you know, got some playing time as an injury replacement, but... Uh, yeah, nobody there really interests me that much. I would like to be interested in Dylan Moore because I, I talked about this with Michael Beller on the, the Thursday edition of uh, the, the Athletic Fantasy Baseball podcast and made a list of players that I'm just not happy with the ADP for. And almost all of them, with maybe two exceptions, were players who mostly contribute in steals. Because I was describing the experience of sitting in the the draft room and you line up the players according to the projected steals. And Tommy Edmond, for example, is coming up. And you know, if you're going to take him there, you're you're overpaying. And yet, who's left when Edmond is gone? So uh, this, this is maybe a an oversight or a weakness that I have that I'm, I'm poo-pooing, you know, Tyler Wade and, and Dylan Moore, but I just think you can find ways to, to piece things together and be patient. And you're going to have some steel sources that you didn't expect that are going to emerge a little later in the season. And you don't have to go you know crazy with your fab budget on week one, trying to get Tyler Wade, for example. I should clarify, it might be second base where he gets the bulk of that time, depending on how they want to align things with David Fletcher at shortstop. But Wade has shortstop eligibility already. I think he's shortstop third and outfield, and he runs a lot. 
The problem is, as kind of an extra guy, an up-and-down sort of player with the Yankees, he's racked up almost 500 career plate appearances, hitting 212, 298, 307. But he's 30 for 38 as a base dealer. So by that slash line, he looks like our prototypical great base dealer who can't hit enough to play every day. But there's an opportunity for him to hang around, be a bottom third of the order guy, and maybe provide some cheap speed, at least for deep, deep leagues, like AL-only leagues, maybe 15-team mixers too, if you're just desperate for some early season speed and uh, you know you're going to have to turn that spot again. I could see a case for it, but uh, I don't know if the bat is going to be good enough. I think the player that might actually hit the most of all these guys, I mean, Iglesias at home could be fine. I don't know if I want to use him as more than a streamer in a mixed league. I think he's really a good, cheap NL-only sort of player, but not necessarily someone you want stuck to your roster even in a 15-team mixed league. I think Andy Ibanez could be the most interesting of all. I think there's eventually a path to second and third base eligibility where he doesn't currently have it. He's hit everywhere he's played in the minor leagues, and and last year was his first opportunity at the big league level. I think we saw a little more power from him once he got to AAA in 2019, which, as we know, is a pump the brakes. It was AAA in 2019. That was the rabbit ball. Uh, But I think there's pretty good plate skills here. We don't see a lot of strikeouts in the profile. So I could see a few ways where Andy Ibanez actually makes his way into more shadow league consideration, like 12-team leagues at some point later this season. The Rangers have an improved lineup as well, and Josh Young's absence is going to be a lengthy one. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure you've talked about this. I know I've talked about this a lot on different episodes, but about how, how deep shortstop is. But yeah, overall, when the middle infielders are gone, I mean, they're gone. So <laughs> in a vacuum, Andy Abanez doesn't really excite me that much, but relative to, to the rest of the group that you've mentioned that's out there on waivers in 14 and 15 team leagues, I think you're right that he is clearly the best alternative out there unless you just want to target somebody solely for stolen, for stolen bases. So uh, yeah, not, not a really exciting group, but you, you make do with what you have there. And I think Abanez does offer the best combination of um, – category help and, and playing time. Rob strikes again. Do you wade into those waters? <laughs> only in deep leagues. Only, only in deep leagues. I want to get to the outfield for a moment. And I think there's a player that's also on the cusp of maybe becoming shadow league relevant if playing time breaks his way. That's Jorge Mateo. I would say of players who are outfield eligible who are widely available. He might have, because of his power and speed combo, the speed especially, being in Baltimore or playing time in the infield, especially in the middle infield, is a wide-open opportunity. I'm starting to get behind Nando and Ian, and I'm starting to believe that Jorge Mateo might actually be, who knows, maybe he's this year's Adelis Garcia, just in terms of being in the right place at the right time with the right skills. And again, I don't think it's going to take an overwhelming sort of fab bid to go out and get him in leagues where he's available. I don't think so. Yeah, I, I've been able to get him late. And yeah, I think that the uh, maybe this weekend as we get closer to opening day, maybe people will feel a little bit better about his his chances of securing a, a role, an important role there with the Orioles. But yeah, I, I think it's, it's pretty interesting. And I talk about my aversion to just chasing players for steals. But like you said, Mateo, particularly in Baltimore, does not have an opportunity to provide a little bit of punch. Not in a great lineup, obviously, there. But um, given your options in middle infield, yeah, I, I would rather go with the stolen base upside for Mateo 
than um, just uh, some of the options that, that really don't don't excite me very much. Yeah, there's a interesting group of outfielders floating around out there, including Clint Frazier in a lot of leagues. There's Garrett Cooper in a decent number of leagues. I think Universal DH helps him quite a bit, though. You know, Miami's getting a little more crowded on that depth chart. I think Seth Beer could end up playing a lot in Arizona. There's plenty of opportunity there. Cole Calhoun was an acquisition that the Rangers made that no one really talked about at the time. So both Cole Calhoun and Willie Calhoun, I think, could be a little more interesting with Donnie Ecker as the offensive coordinator, as they're calling him now, in Texas. Uh, Kyle Isbell, if you're looking for speed in Kansas City, is really interesting. I don't know how much I believe in the short-term offensive ability of Christian Pache, but I believe in that path to playing time. And there are tools there, and I think Guys like that who are great defenders who get the consistent playing time have a chance to figure some things out because they're not in and out of the lineup. The young players that are playing two or three times a week, I feel like they have a more difficult path to unlocking their full potential. And I think Pache is in a much better place in Oakland than he would have been had he stayed in Atlanta where things were so crowded, he would have just been an extra guy. Uh, Gavin Sheets, who we mentioned earlier, uh, also in very deep leagues, probably again more for AL-only leagues. Is there anybody else, though, in that outfield group that you feel deserves extra consideration as more than just a, a min-bid sort of player, a, you know, contingency sort of option? Because I think a lot of those guys are just backup bids. Yeah, no, I'm with you there. No, you save, save that money for later. Uh, I don't think that that's from that group that you're going to find anybody that's uh, going to be more than a long shot. And I think you're more optimistic about Pache than, than I am, actually. Uh, I just I want to see the, the production at the major league level uh, before I pay for it. Question from Jay Perkins. Rank these hitter options in a 15-team league. Jeremy Pena, Jake Fraley, Jerickson Profar, Kevin Smith, and Stephen Kwan. I think I'm Kevin Smith at the top of the list. So I should recuse myself because I, I rank Kevin Smith over everyone except for Victor Robles because those are those are my guys uh, I think Smith I'd go Smith one probably Pena two Profar three Quan four Fraley five I think the Tommy Pham edition really messed things up for Jake Fraley unfortunately yeah it did yeah and I'm with you putting Fraley in the bottom actually I agree with you completely except I'm a little unsure about where to put Stephen Quan. I'm not Huge on the skill profile, but I am pretty huge on the playing time opportunity and think he could you know, help with batting average. And that's, I've come to feel like that's more important than I've thought in the past. Maybe others underrate that as well, because it's just, it's hard to find players late that can help you in that category. So I'm actually kind of neck, seeing him as neck and neck with Pena. And I'm still not exactly sure what the, the role is going to be for Pena. So I think I would, would go Smith, then Quan. Pena, Profar Fraley. I think the the player from the outfield group that I mentioned in passing that I like more than almost everybody in the question, though, is Kyle Isbell. Like, I, there's possibly yeah. cheap speed there. We know the Royals are a team that will let guys run, and offensively, they're having a great spring as a team. They've got some prospect help coming up to bolster the lineup as well. Isbell did come up and, and hold, hold his own last year. It causes some problems for... Edward Olivares, who's a favorite of the fantasy baseball community. But Kyle Isbell, 22 for 27 as a base dealer at AAA last year, popped 15 home runs. Yeah, I know it was Omaha. Omaha plays in a lot of the PCL parks. But Omaha itself, compared to Albuquerque and El Paso and some of the more extreme environments, Reno, 
Omaha plays a little more normal, at least for a home park. So I'm I'm less concerned about power emerging with that home park relative to some of the yeah. others at that level. So I'm really curious to see how the Royals make the pieces fit, but I'm I'm watching very closely to see what the role looks like for Isabel when the games begin to count. Yeah, I think he's got an opportunity there, and like you say, the steals uh, potential is is really enticing and could could give you a nice average, decent power. It's a good good uh, overall package there. Catchers not uh, not a great group this week. Uh, I think Jorge Alfaro having a great spring and having connections to. AJ Preller from their time in Texas years and years ago, it might just lead to Alfaro playing more than you'd expect him to. Similar to what we've seen with Jerks and Profar during Profar's time in San Diego for the exact same reasons. Yeah, because uh, he'll catch a little ostensibly, but he can play the outfield. Uh, he could obviously he could DH. So uh, there's going to be opportunities for for Alfaro to get in there. Probably not every day, but for a catcher. Uh, I think it's a little bit different for catchers, right, this year because uh, some of the better hitting ones probably DH more, especially in the NL. But uh, I think that that move maybe helps our Alfaro more than a lot of other NL catchers because he can also play some other positions as well. And I'm I'm very curious to see what he does uh, in San Diego because he did have that one season with the Marlins where we saw a little bit of power. He's really a unicorn in that he's a guy who strikes out way too much, but also hits a ton of live drives and doesn't pop out. So he kind of uh, neutralizes that with, with a consistently high BABIP and at the catcher position, you get somebody who doesn't just isn't an absolute albatross for batting average and, and has some power potential and some playing playing type potential. Uh, I really like Alfaro as a, a catcher two target. Yeah. 15 team leagues, especially maybe even in 12s, depending on how much he's playing, but I think he's at least on the radar for 15s as we move into the weekend, given the state of the position, Unless you're getting into what the Yankees are doing behind the plate with Kyle Higashioka and Ben Rortvit, I'd like to see a little bit of the distribution of playing time and Rortvit as a hitter before even speculating on really either one of those catchers. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Let's get to some pitching, though. We'll start with shallow mixed league targets. Tanner Houck moving up my board, uh, it seems like every day, moving up in my heart. I think Tanner Houck is filthy. I think he's going to be very, very good in shallow leagues where he's available. I actually would put him first of this group of names. Waskari Noah, I think, fits into this group, Al. Jesus Lazardo is kind of pitching his way back into at least the 12-team radar, but 
I'm curious if you'd even push him for your very last roster spot or even just your last bench spot when you're looking at a 10-team league. I wouldn't because there's so many options in a 10-team league. And I know that Lizardo's having a really impressive spring. He did have a, a nice start to his career with the A's before he really developed the, the major control issues. But... Uh, I, I'm not trusting a few spring training innings to kind of elevate him back in, in my own uh, you know estimation to the, the guy that he was with Oakland when he first came up. So uh, at a 10-teamer, I just think that that's, that's just a little more trust than than I'm willing to, uh, to have in him. 12-teamer, I, I could definitely see that. Yeah, I think as you look at the schedule, the way things are currently lined up, the first start of the year for Lazardo would be at San Francisco. The Giants' offense has burned us for two years running. I think that could be a good test for him. I don't know if I'd use him in a shallow league as a streamer. Maybe in a 15-team league, I would throw Lazardo in that start, though, depending on who my other options were. And coming through the second time through the rotation, a home start against Philly, with the offense being as good as it is right now, that may be one of the few home starts where you don't feel good about your back-end Marlins. So the schedule is a kind of a key for me, too, as I start thinking about the drafts I have left and the early waiver pickups I want to make. Nothing set in stone yet, but it's a good thing to sort of keep an eye on as you, you make those plans. Uh, Tyler McGill gets a mention in the shallow league portion because as you started looking at your 15-team leagues, he's gone already. He's already been picked up on the unfortunate injury news with Jacob deGrom, which we're still waiting for some more details. That should open up a spot for McGill to begin the season. Uh, and with the other injury histories in play with the Mets rotation, it's not that difficult to see a path for McGill to just stay in the rotation, even if we get some reasonably good news on DeGrom in the next couple of days. Yeah, well, there are some other uh, pitchers there that can compete for spots. Uh, so David Peterson has already been mentioned in some reports as somebody who could temporarily replace uh, DeGrom. So uh, so there's that. Uh, Trevor, uh, Trevor Williams is in there in that mix. I think he's going to start the year in the bullpen. But uh, Tyler McGill, I mean, started off really, really impressively with the Mets last year, but then just gave up way too many home runs. So I'm a little shy about trusting him in a 12-teamer. I'm not, again, even that certain that he's going to be the first one to get the call um, to fill in for DeGrom. So, yeah, uh, in terms of this this first weekend of Fab, uh, I don't see myself targeting him. And if I do, it's, it's going to be a, a min-bid. What about Tony Gonsolin? Do you value him similar to McGill? I think a little bit more, but I also, again, a little bit uh, shy about uh, investing uh, fab dollars in Gonsolin because of, of just him not performing as well as I had hoped in, in 2021. Uh, but I, I can't let myself be too swayed by that limited uh, playing time, obviously, because if we if we turn the clock back one year, I think we were all pretty sky high on, on Tony Gonsolin. So uh, I, I try to keep that in mind. I think there were shoulder issues for Gonsolin last year, too, that probably made him a bit less effective. If he's really past that, I think I could see him creeping up into the 10-team conversation later on this season, firmly in the 12-team mix, at least as a streamer right now. Uh, curious to know what you're doing with Hunter Green, Nick Lodolo, and Mackenzie Gore, just given what they have done. Gore, I don't think there's necessarily a, an immediate path for him to the back of the Padres rotation. He certainly has put himself back on the fantasy radar, at least for watch list purposes, because the command and the velocity have been really good this spring. But Green and Lodolo, because of all the injuries the Reds are dealing with right now, they're getting an early season opportunity. So in what types of leagues are you actually pursuing them? 
I think you could make an argument for Green and Lodolo in 10 teams. I really do, because I think they're going to, whether it's right off the bat or or just a little bit later on, I think that they both have an opportunity to spend a large part of the season in the, the Reds' rotation. They're just... There's nothing to hold them back at this point, other than maybe just the the organization's desire to have them in the in the minors just a little bit longer. Uh, Gore, I th- on the one hand, I I feel like there's opportunity in that Padres rotation, um, but also maybe more of an incentive to keep him down a little bit longer. I I don't see him as a target for ten teamers just yet, but I definitely do for twelve teamers. Yeah. Definitely on the watch list for me in those shallow leagues. If I don't have a spot where I feel like I need to make an upgrade right now. Let's get to some deeper league starters, though. This is the group of pitchers that many of us are are trying to wade through right now, trying to decide, are these guys better than the late flyers we took? Have these situations improved enough in terms of health, in terms of spring velocity or new pitches or performance we're talking about guys like Zach Eflin, who I think has shown that he's pretty healthy coming off the knee injury. Merrill Kelly, who actually just got an extension on Friday. Spencer Howard, a top prospect who people were pretty excited about this time last year. And I haven't heard or seen nearly as much about him going into drafts this year. I've kind of seen him buried in the draft rooms, too. So you don't you just don't even think about him in your queue because he's so far below the fold. Matt Brash, who's getting a lot of attention as he vies for a spot in the back of the Seattle rotation. And then a bunch of what I think are, are more like streamer types. You know, Jake Odorizzi, Drew Smiley, Austin Gomber on the road, Chris Bubich, David Peterson, who you mentioned earlier. Uh, maybe Mitch Keller and Rich Hiller in that mix. Tyler Alexander gets a temporary spot in the Tigers rotation. Where do your interests lie in this group of players? I know you've been a Merrill Kelly guy more than I have in the past, but I'm starting to buy in just based on uh, the new pitch this spring and the fact that Arizona decided to extend him. I think they see something a little bit sustainable in what he's been doing recently. Well, I'm not as excited about Kelly as I was this time a year ago because part of my excitement was that he was one of these players that finished the previous season with with a real improvement and he was throwing harder. Uh, there was an uptick in strikeouts. And so it just seemed like there was a chance for that to carry over into 2021 and it, it didn't really materialize. So I'm sort of off Kelly now, but again, we're talking deep league options. I do have Kelly in, in one deep league. And the thing that you mentioned that he got the extension that he clearly in, in a not very deep um, rotation depth chart, he's got a, a place there and he has been, been very effective at stretches or first stretches rather. So uh, yeah, he's kind of a, a boring guy who in a in deep leagues, he, there's a place for that. So that that's kind of where I'm at with Kelly. I, I think that I'm more interested in the upside of Zach Eflin, Spencer Howard. I guess I'm I'm as guilty as anybody of not really paying much attention to him because uh, he just hadn't really lived up to the hype so far. But he's he's an upside guy. I think Brash of of all the names that you mentioned, I think he's probably the most intriguing and and interesting because there's a real opportunity there for him in Seattle. That's such a great park to be pitching in. Uh, so the, and, and the Mariners should score a good, you know, good amount of runs this year as well. So, uh, I, I like that situation a lot for Matt Brash. Pretty, pretty exciting. And also we haven't seen him pitch at the major league level, so we can, we can project all of our, our best, uh, wishes, you know, all of our, our, our best expectations for him, uh, without looking at, you know, like with Spencer Howard, like, oh, well he disappointed when he first came up. 
Right. And I guess I didn't mention Reed Detmers before because he's not available in my league since I already have him. But if he's available, if Reed Detmers is sitting out there in your 15-team league, I think he's very interesting. I think the the Angels are going to give him that sixth rotation spot. I think he's better than their sixth starter. I think it's just a, a matter of time before we, we start to see the guy that the Angels thought they were getting when they drafted him in 2020. And the debut last year just pushed so many people away. That's exactly what happened with Spencer Howard as well. The stuff is really good. The questions you might have about workload and season-long innings, that's a question to figure out in August. Don't worry about that right now. If he's pitching like a regular starter right now in a pitcher-friendly environment on an improving team, I think Spencer Howard is going to be really interesting, especially if there are a couple favorable early season matchups on the calendar. And if he starts in their second series of the season, that's a quick two-game home series with the Rockies. So that first start might be a really good streaming opportunity at the very least for Spencer Howard. So keep a very close eye on the schedule. I think Matt Brash could be this year's Tanner Houck. That was the that was the name that popped into my head. I was talking to Keith Law on the Athletic Baseball show that came out on Friday. And it was seeing Keith's write-up and hearing him talk about how violent the delivery is for Brash and some of the concerns you might have long-term and thinking about the depth that the Mariners do have in their rotation. They might use Brash as a starter now and then back off him a bit and then spot start him later in the year. And he might just take this meandering road to 100 or 120 innings this year. And they might be fantastic because the usage ends up being more like three and four inning bouts for a while where he doesn't have to go through the lineup a third time, but he's just mowing guys down and providing great ratios for us, which eventually would just lead us to the, can we get an opener? Can we have Justice Sheffield throw an inning or two and then get Matt Brash for those three or four innings? That would be the ultimate sweet spot consideration. But I think the strikeouts alone, the fact that he's got two very good pitches that puts Matt Brash absolutely in the mix. He's getting drafted. If you haven't drafted yet, he's not going to be on the wire in your league after the draft. He's going to go in the last, I don't know, 50 to 75 picks of your draft in most rooms. Yeah, that's a good thing to point out. You're not going to be able to just uh, yeah save uh, your fab money and, and anticipate you're going to be able to get brash that way. But I, I like the assessment, uh, and I think that it's just a good thing to keep in mind that as we're looking at depth charts or we're seeing news about who's making an open day opening day roster. I mean, every year, uh, you know, I, I've certainly been guilty of, of overreacting to news and and uh, you know those rosters change a week or two down the line and uh, throughout the season, but you have to make a decision then if you're going to get brash and give up a, a, a pick to get them that you're in a situation where you're going to be able to stash them over the long haul. Because like with Tanner Houck, I think that's a fantastic comparison. Uh, if you dropped him at some point, you, you likely regretted it. So that's, that's a part of the, I think a part of what you have to account for with Matt Brash. Yeah, players who get their innings in that shape over a season are very difficult to hold on to the entire time in a lot of our leagues. I will absolutely say that. So you may have had a point where it made logical sense to cut Tanner Houck last year, and you may have the exact same problem with Matt Brash later, but don't worry about that today. If he ends up winning that job, he might be very good for the little bit of time at least that he's given a chance to hold. It might be a net positive in most leagues. And if he's good enough, he'll just stick. They'll just say, you know what, we're not going to mess with this. He could prove himself. I think that's part of the appeal here as well. Not going to play the semi-sonic track because I don't want to get sued by a band, but um, it is closing time on the podcast and we always end with relievers because why wouldn't you? It just seems so logical to, to finish out a waiver podcast this way. I think in most leagues, Al, we're probably talking about 
committee dart throws and injury replacements that weren't drafted. For the most part, the guys that we expected to be getting the bulk of saves for their teams have been drafted, even if we drafted two or three weeks ago. They're mostly rostered. I think, in my estimation, the actual best reliever available on the wire in a decent number of leagues right now, and he's definitely being drafted if you've drafted in the last few days, last week or so, it's Art Warren. I think Art Warren is the most interesting because there's no guarantee that when Lucas Sims is healthy that he gets the job back. If Art Warren pitches well, he might be the closer today, he might be the closer next week, and he might be the closer next month. And for a lot of the other guys you might be looking at, Michael Givens and David Robertson, among others with the Cubs, or Pierce Johnson and Emilio Pagan uh, in San Diego, if Robert Suarez isn't available. Even Alex Colomay, who pre-2021 put up some good numbers. He's in Colorado. That looks like a three-man committee based on their description. All those other guys seem like they're much more likely to share as part of larger committees. And even if Warren has to share with Sims, that looks more like a two-person committee than a three-person committee. And I'll take half the saves as opposed to a third of the saves if we're trying to split these pies equally. Well, as somebody who drafted Lucas Sims in every early draft this year, this is not what I want to hear, but I think that that's the right analysis. Uh, War, I mean, Warren's just got that closer profile, so he would seem to be the the right person to get trusted entrusted with those first opportunities. And if he does well with them, why? You know, why would they go a different route? Um, also, I think that mirrors a bit the Marlin situation too, because uh, Dylan Floro might not be ready for opening day and you've got a clear uh, lead candidate there in Anthony Bender who could get all or the vast majority of early save opportunities and could be good enough to just take the job and run with it. So uh, I, of those two, I, I like Warren better, but I, I think that um, Bender's another interesting name to consider this weekend. Yeah, I guess I didn't think about Bender as much compared to Warren because I, there's a, a lot of Anthony Bender in in my life already I've got him on a couple teams and one was in a, a moment of I have too much money left and now I get Anthony Bender at a ridiculous price uh, I think skills wise he looks great I think the one thing that actually I would maybe consider that puts Bender just ahead of Warren the Marlins are one of those teams that have not necessarily put out this idea that they're going to use a committee the Reds yeah. in the past have since Rysel Iglesias left that's been something that they've hinted at doesn't mean they will do it, right? That's that's part of the whole exercise is who's actually going to follow through on it. So I think when I look at those skills for Bender, I'm a little more inclined in leagues where he's also available to put him even ahead of Art Warren at this point. Yeah, well, I think you've got more confidence there. Um, I actually like Warren's skills a little bit better. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a tough call. I mean, I like both of them. I, I Yeah, I suppose that Bender may not be available in some of your drafts and then that that's a, it's a moot comparison, but uh, I, I don't think it, if they're both available, I don't think you can really go wrong. I think that they have similar value going forward in terms of being able to get a lot of save opportunities and, and do well with them. I will fully admit it's probably the endowment effect. I have Anthony Bender on a few teams. I don't have art Warren on any teams yet. That breaks the tie in my mind. Most likely it's, it's a, it's a bias for me. So Skills are good for both. They're both very interesting. And I think we're not talking about shallow league closers as their own group because I think in those leagues, you're, you always are, are pushing for the guys that actually are getting the jobs. You're speculating a little bit less in those formats. But those two, Warren and Bender, 
uh, really kind of jump out. Is there anybody else in the relief pool that you are thinking about throwing into your queues, even if they're just min-bid sorts of guys because the situation is so uncertain, but there might be interesting skills if things break the right way? Well, I don't know if this is going a little more shallow than what you're envisioning, but I I have found in pretty much every single draft that Andrew Kittredge is going much later than I'm expecting and very happy about that. So uh, he, I'm sure he's spoken for it in, in your deep leagues already, uh, so he wouldn't be a fab candidate, but um, he's somebody who, who may be out there and may, you may be surprised to find that he's out there. And I think he's got a real shot at, at getting... Uh, half or a majority of the race saves. Yeah, he might be the guy that if you drafted four to six weeks ago in a shallow league, he's already he's already just forgotten about and he is on the wire. So I would say for sure, Kittredge also belongs in this conversation, has shallow league relevance right now because of the Pete Fairbanks injury. Fairbanks being down is one fewer option to hold a share of that job. And I couldn't believe this. It was just a few years ago, 2019. Emilio Pagan had 20 saves for the Rays. The Rays have plenty of seasons. If you look back at the past decade, they have plenty of guys that have picked up 30 saves in a season. So Kittredge could end up being a big difference maker who even just a a week or two ago was an endgame dart for a lot of people. And now I think he's going to creep up probably into that firm closer three sort of range. I mean, I'm thinking about where, where Matt Barnes typically goes in a draft. I think that's about where Andrew Kittredge could justifiably go if you still have a draft coming up this weekend. Yeah, I think that's very reasonable. And I, again, I would continue to be very happy to get him at that point. I would I would actually prefer him to Matt Barnes. I think he's going to get a, a large share, and I, I love the skills. Well, it's going to be a fun weekend. Still more drafts to come. First waiver run in leagues that have already drafted. We hope this was helpful and enlightening and entertaining at the very least. If you'd like to read more about waiver wire targets, all the different things that are on all of our minds right now over at The Athletic, you can do that at theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. That gets you a subscription for $1 a month for the first six months. If you watch this video on YouTube, be sure to hit the like button and subscribe to The Athletic Fantasy channel. If you enjoyed this podcast on a platform like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can leave us a nice rating and review, we would greatly appreciate that. On Twitter, you can find Al at LMelkyOrBB. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast returns on Tuesday. Have a great weekend.